Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this edition of the programme, acclaimed Canadian visual artist Stan Douglas, whose work is on public exhibition for the first time in Ireland at the Irish Museum of Modern Art. The Irish Museum of Modern Art is currently hosting the exhibition Stan Douglas, Mise en Seine. It includes over 40 works with a special focus on the photographs Douglas has produced since 2008, providing a rich introduction to the artist's practice. Stan Douglas came to international prominence in the 1990s when his film installation Der Sandman was one of the highlights of the European art exhibition Document 10 in Basel in 1997. Born in 1960 in Vancouver, Douglas is known for his use of new and outdated technologies, cinema, television and photography, and for referencing literary writers including Samuel Beckett, Joseph Conrad and Marcel Proust to consider the crossover of history and memory in evocative and mesmerising artworks. The exhibition at IMA presents photographic works ranging from his Crowds and Riots series, 2008, to Mid-Century Studio, 2010-11, to some of his latest photographs, such as Hotel Vancouver from 2014. The exhibition is curated by Seamus Keeley, director of the Salzburger Kunstverein in Salzburg in Austria. The IMA show forms part of an ongoing tour of Stan Douglas's work. Seamus Keeley met with Clean and Yandun at the exhibition and explained how this show came about. I invited Stan to Sligo in 2010. I was uh, directing the model at that stage and we were talking about a project that happened there. And as things changed, as they do, and time passed, uh, and it became evident I'd be moving to Austria, we decided to pitch the project to here, to the Irish Museum of Modern Art. And they very graciously accepted the project, and here it was installed. But I think an interesting connection with Ireland for Stan is his long relationship with Samuel Beckett. What I, I found most intriguing is that after he finished art school, he began reading Samuel Beckett from the late work backwards to the early work. From what I understand, he had a epiphany or a complete change of pace in his work and started anew at this stage in in the early 80s. And you can see that the strategies of Samuel Beckett, his formal concerns, his uh, use of repetition, his distrust of language, his suspicion for long uh, traditional narratives, in all these things that come together in a very dense matter in Samuel Beckett's writing and his plays, you find these elements in Stan Douglas's work, and they resurface continually in different ways. In the early work, he did uh, works for television, like Samuel Beckett had, the teleplays, but Stan Douglas did these works called monodramas, again, very early on, 1990, 1991, where he actually got airtime on live television in Canada and staged these 30 to 40 second vignettes that made no sense whatsoever, where you see two people, let's say, passing each other in the street, and one says, hey, Gary, how's it going? And then the other guy says, uh, I'm not Gary. And then, it's, and then it's finished. So interrupting the whole flow of television and the meaning construction of television. So right away you can see this sense of interruption and having a strong connection to 
the work of Samuel Beckett. And again, that comes up again and again in his work. The work in this exhibition concentrates on the period 2008 to the present, more or less. Where was he coming from up to 2008, as, as mm-hmm. you would see it as a, as a curator? Where were the major steps forward for mm-hmm. Stan Douglas? Well, that's what's amazing about this exhibition, is that in, the, in around that time, 2008, Stan Douglas left film and video production to concentrate on photography. He'd used photography previously as a, almost a secondary medium for his films and videos. For example, uh, I mentioned the monodramas for television he produced. Later on, he would develop projects in particular contexts. So in 1995, he was invited to Berlin on a residency, and he was using photography there as a research mechanism, so to speak, taking photographs of areas in and around Berlin, and learned about this history of what are called Schrebergarten, these gardens that were in the backyards of, of people's homes, developed in the 1800s, based on the, the philosophy, this almost utopian philosophy of this, this urbanist, so to speak. And he develops a narrative out of this, linking it with Sigmund Freud, because the son of Schreber was one of Freud's patients around the theory of paranoia. And Stan makes all these links and puts together a film depicting these gardens and woven within this depiction, which is in two time periods, a very complex installation. Uh, He tells the tale of Der Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman is being read by uh, a narrator and then links in all these different narratives, these complex narratives around Sigmund Freud, around um, a history of urban control in Germany and, of course, very much with a glance at what was happening in Germany in 1995 then. So you can see the complexity of the work coming together is, is, is quite astounding. And this would be a very strong example of the kind of work he'd be doing leading up to the show, leading up to the work in this exhibition, which is photography, where the photographs are now made in that manner, like a film or like a video production where he has to hire an entire crew, do casting uh, with extras, costume design, have a script to make one image. And it's incredible. So you see all the work that he'd been doing before, making film and, and video installations, leads into the photography that we see in this exhibition. And immediately, Seamus, scale is very, very important in these photographs. You know, you see them in the catalogue and you wonder, you know, you look at the measurements and you have some idea, but you walk into the rooms here in Emma, the long corridors, and you say, yeah, they really are big. Is that part of the intention? Is he very aware of the size? Is the scale very important to him? Well, I think like the work Abbott and Cordova, which is, you know, literally 50 or more than 50 photographs stitched together to make one image, like a tableau, like a giant old master's painting. So I think this is a very deliberate strategy that he uses in this tradition in one sense, but another, the narratives that he's, he's weaving together are doing something quite different. There are different kind of allegories going, going on. It's very contemporary, naturally. But also it's a matter of you know, being able to fit the story into the photo, often a scene that's happening in Abbott and Cordova in a film might take place over you know, a number of different shots. It might even happen over a number of many minutes just to tell you the narrative of what's going on from these different perspectives. And he's able to compress these all into one image in a way that you can stand in front of it and instantly see it, or you can stand in front of it and look at this picture for ages. Why does he pick the particular periods he does? 
He's interested in history and the reinterpretation of history and maybe the missed narratives of history, but the particular dates to which he's drawn, could you shed light on that for us? It's different in different series. Um, you see Stan inhabit a fictitious role and you make photos as if they were made by someone living at that time. And you're absolutely right, he's interested in history. He's interested in recreating moments of history, maybe moments that were overlooked or that have, could, could have gone a different direction where the possibility of a revolution could have happened or he wants to draw attention between cultural or um, just different links. It could be the 70s or it could be the 50s in the case of the photo just behind you there, Hastings Park, which is from Vancouver, because Vancouver is often a backdrop to his work as well. And you'll see different periods of Vancouver appearing in his photographs, whether from uh, these Crowds and Riot series or the mid-century studio photographs, which are all black and white, look like they're from the late 40s, 1950s. They look like Ouija. You remember this, this photographer, Ouija, who always turned up at the scene of a crime magically after you know, the blood is still rolling, running out of someone's body. And Stan identifies a kind of vernacular photography that took place with these old cameras with the flash bulbs and, and recreates that with digital photography, again, inhabiting another fictitious photographer, in this case, in Vancouver. So you can see there's, there's so much going on you know, in these different series of photos. Always a look back to these different times, recreating a history, recreating a, t- a time period. Time periods in which he wasn't living, so he has always had to find an interpretation for them, a way into them that was not his own directly. That's right, and he spends a lot of time in archives, and he spends a lot of time doing research about particular periods. So, you know, it's not that he's just creating uh, pictures like a Hollywood director. He's engaged very much with the subject matter. You know, in the case of Mid-Century Studio, he spent time between two different archives, one in Toronto, uh, the Black Star archives, and one in Vancouver, the Vancouver Library, looking at thousands of photographs from that time period, trying to get a sense of some things that happened then, uh, negotiating that with uh, narratives of what actually did happen then, and then, yeah, using a kind of format of recreating that historical period. And yet, looking at the photographs, there is often a decision to deliberately show us that it is a construct, that it is made, that it isn't the photo that was taken in 1950 or whatever, or that would have been had there been somebody there. He's letting us know that in some way. He was aware of the mistrust of the photograph. And, I mean, that brings us back to Samuel Beckett again, where there's mistrust of narratives, a mistrust of what we see, what we perceive. And that is built absolutely into the pictures. You know, you can see this most evidently in the last pictures in the final room, Hotel Vancouver and Hogan's Alley. And you look at these photos, you think, my goodness, how did he, he make these? But in fact, they, there's nothing actually photographed in those pictures. They're all built from computer software. So every different detail in the picture is based on uh, research and archival material and so aerial photos and so on, but all constructed with software to make the most accurate kind of image of what actually happened then. But it raises this question, what actually are we looking at? And in the background of that, what is photography and how is it always used you know, in different contexts, what we see, what we see depict on the television, what we see in the newspapers and so on. These questions are inherent in the work too. For those who haven't seen Stan Douglas' book, 
What other artists have echoes of standout lists that people might be interested in or see maybe connections? Well, I think those who've come to see shows in the last few years, you might see some interesting relationships with Duncan Campbell, for example, who I've also worked with. Duncan is also working with archival material, making astonishing films that are investigating history and raising questions about how we perceive personality and political situations. That's a very interesting relationship, not necessarily parallel, they're going in different directions, but I think people would see uh, interesting connections there. Maybe even James Coleman, I know that Stan Douglas is very interested in James Coleman's work and they know each other and have been in touch now and then over the years. I think what often happens with Stan's work is it, it gets bound up with a lot of Vancouver artists' work, like Jeff Wall, who I also studied with, or Ronnie Graham and Ian Wallace and this whole circuit of very international artists coming out of Vancouver. But I think it's important for us to look at Stan's work in the international context, and his work shines when it comes out of Vancouver. It sits well in European museums and has a, a very engaged public very much in, in Europe. So that's what I would say. I'd say that this is one way of approaching the work. Vancouver and the home place for Stan Douglas is very, very important. He's not making any excuse that it's anywhere else other than Vancouver, and yet the language, the subject, the materiality of it, it's all extremely international. It's very much recognisable. We could place other countries' narratives in these photographs. There's no question. I mean, Vancouver is often referred to as Hollywood North, there are always film sets being put up and taken down. You see uh, this blurring between reality and what's being staged in the city. I live in Salzburg uh, in Austria, another city where you see the stage is the city and vice versa. You know, Jeff Wall, uh, another photographer artist, once called Vancouver the generic city, the city where anything can be seen, anything can be represented. So you're absolutely right. There is this global series of events and, and happenings happening within Vancouver that Stan Douglas is playing with. His hand is in all these photos, not just uh, the eye of the photographer, you know, shooting each, each image or each part of the different images, but also with the suturing of the different images into one, the color enhancement, bringing light in, taking things out, the digital adjustments that he has to do, all the technical things that I do not understand whatsoever. He knows them inside out. He has a good team supporting him, but every single little decision in these photographs have his hand in them. There's no question. But one thing you do understand very much is it is your show from a curation point of view. How did you build the blocks? How did you lay it out? How did you start deciding what would go where? What did you want to tell? There's a very particular order to the exhibition walking through. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest with you, I did that very much in consultation with Stan. But we have the, the exhibition in groups of series. So you come in immediately and you see the interiors work, which are a bit of an anomaly to the rest because most of the other photographs are these narrative constructions where they're almost a, a stage set in a picture but the, the interiors are not they're photographs of specific sites that Stan has found but then you come into the next room where the, there's a crowd 
Crowds and Riot series, which we're sitting in now. And then you follow that into Mid-Century Studio, which occupies the entire hall. These photographs done by a fictitious photographer in the 1940s, 1950s. And then behind that are disc, the Disco Angola photographs, as well as Malabar portraits, and then Luan de Kinshasa, the film. And then finally, at the end, the later photographs, Hotel Vancouver and Hogan's Alley. So everything is grouped very clearly into these series. Your own first encounter with Stan Douglas was in Vancouver. Yeah, well, it was over 20 years ago, you're right. Uh, I was in uh, an art theory class taught by Ken Lum at the University of British Columbia, and I had just actually arrived in Vancouver not so long before that. And then Ken would bring artists in uh, every now and then, and one day he brought Stan Douglas in. He was this tall, striking, very articulate, very confident young artist. He showed us a work called uh, Overture, which is a very beautiful, silent film. He, he takes old film footage from the Edison Film Company and uh, it's just of a train going through tunnels. It's almost the eye of the train that we see. And alongside this wonderful image, there is a monologue. And I remember putting up my hand and asking, sorry, uh, is that Merceau speaking? And, and I had confused Merceau with Albert Camus. For some reason, I thought it was something from The Outsider. I couldn't place what it was. And then he said, no, that's Proust. <laughs> and, you know, which made complete sense, of course, uh, when you begin to put everything together around Proust speaking about uh, forgotten memory and, and uh, the memories of, of times past. And here he was conflating mechanical time with a sense of human memory, bringing together something quite vulnerable and uh, delicate with this machinery. And it, and it ends up with some kind of poetry. And it really completely blew me away. Even before he began to unravel it for us, it was spellbinding. And I think from that moment, and as I'm saying this to you, I'm getting shivers down my spine. From that moment, I was really hooked on his work and followed it very, very closely. So for me, uh, to work with Stan Douglas in the show is, is a huge privilege and uh, a big highlight of my career, that's for sure. Seamus Keeley there, curator of Stan Douglas' Mise en Scène. Stan Douglas himself met with Kleena Nianlun in the Irish Museum of Modern Art, where his exhibition is running. There he spoke about his early background and how he became an artist. I, I guess, well, early on I was interested in theatre, and I, I had plans, plans to go to the National Theatre School in Canada, in Ottawa, in fact. Um, it was directing I was more interested in. In, in. in fact, set design also, like a whole sort of uh, mise-en-scene was uh, of interest to me. Um, but then I was trying to do a production of Wedding for Godot and my fellow students did not learn their lines. I found it very frustrating. And at the same time, I was doing printmaking and photography and the instructor told me I should go to the Vancouver Art Gallery because there was visual art. I had no idea that there was contemporary visual art. Um, the idea that you can make these works of art with, by yourself without collaborators was kind of... Uh, interesting to me, given the past uh, problem, problems I had with uh, the, the actors, so I thought maybe this is something I, I could do, and I, I did for many years, but of course it's come to the point where much of my work is uh, working with other collaborators, actors, technicians, and that kind of thing. You're growing up, your background in that, when did you think that you wanted to make sense of the world creatively? I was a poor drawer, but I liked drawing anyway, so I often did very technical drawings. My mother was always 
reading books and books around the house. So this was something that was, I was aware of all the time, uh, that literature was a possibility of was, uh, something somebody could do. And my father was a neurologist, but he left when I was quite young. Um, but I, I don't know. As a matter of fact, I just don't know. So from the beginning, the connections have remained. You have constructed yeah. narratives for a long time, maybe unspoken, but you always have been interested in the word. I guess that may be a little difference between the theatre world and what I'm interested in, is that the word is not so important to me as it is as the image. And, and that's why I'm interested in theatres theater, of images. Uh, for Beckett, for example, has been an abiding interest of mine. And he does not only write words, but he also writes, writes images. Uh, typically, there's a, a tyranny of a text in, in, in theatre where that's, that's the key thing that people are always uh, talking about and, and is kind of dominant. But I think uh, images are, are a kind of a crucial aspect as well. Uh, I just made a play last year, a play called Helen Lawrence, that was all based on both the, the words being said, but in, in a certain degree, one of the major aspects is the way in which you're seeing it. Because in this play, Helen Lawrence, you're seeing a, a cinema being made before your eyes. It's live and virtual all at the same time. The entire stage is a big blue screen set. Uh, the floor, the walls are all covered in blue. Um, there's no object on stage except for things people pick up or these, these blue cubes, so everything disappears uh, as regards the camera. Um, downstage, there's a dolly track that moves back and forth. Uh, actors take ch uh, changes, uh, uh, turns off in the cameras. There's a scrim between the audience and the stage, which in a way becomes this membrane through which we see the actors, but also see them composited live into virtual sets. So we're seeing uh, these sort of puny humans on stage, plus gigantic cinematic images of them um, sort of projected into the 19, uh, 1940s and 50s uh, in the post-war period. So this, in a way, there's this sort of double image that's happening simultaneously. In Helen Lawrence, you're um, looking at these people who are... Uh, enduring a transitional moment between the uh, post-war period, uh, the 1940s, which we kind of know what that feels like. We're in wartime. Certain conditions are um, in place. Uh, there's, there's rationing. There's black markets. People are doing things they're not very proud of to get by because uh, times are tough. They've been away. They've come back. They've killed people. See people die around them. So in a way, people in, and this was an epiphany to me, is that uh, in the film noir, the way in which these femme fatales and uh, tough guys behave is based on the trauma of war. Kind of obvious, but kind of it was an epiphany to me as I was looking at this, this moment. Um, but the real contrast for me was between the 1940s, this wartime condition, and the 1950s, which is we, if it's true or not, it may be entirely ideological, this idea of a, a normative moment where suddenly everyone is a heterosexual family with uh, 2.5 children in the suburbs. Obviously an ideological construct, but nevertheless this is, our, this is an image of the, the 50s. But we don't really look at that transitional moment between uh, the wartime and the 1950s. So that's what I wanted to focus on uh, with Helen Lawrence as things are becoming normalized. The whole moment is in the post-war period, much of like what you see here in a work called Mid-Century Studio. In fact, Helen Lawrence is a piece I was trying to make for about five years, and I couldn't make it. And so in a way, uh, I, I made Mid-Century Studio as a way of exploring the research I'd done for so, so long, even though I couldn't uh, realize the final work. Linking that work, in the catalogue we see many stills from um, Helen Lawrence, and that is something that you've done all along. Photography is something that you have used both to record mm -hmm. future work, but also to stand alone, to be what we see. The stills are our documentation to give one a sense of what's going on. Um, but theatre and cinema always are 
directing uh, audiences' attention in terms of time. It only lasts for a limited period of time. Various tricks are being used to uh, focus one's attention. Uh, whereas in, in photographs, such as the ones uh, in the room around us, there's many, many details which we can uh, pay attention to based on our own interests. So the narrative, instead of being something which is uh, moving, moving through time, even if there may be lulls and, and cycles and that kind of thing, we're always being pulled through it as, as, as time, uh, time proceeds in, in the duration of the work. In terms of photographs, you're able to negotiate the, the, the space of the photograph uh, as you decide, uh, to decide what's important to look at the space relationships uh, which tell certain stories between one character and another. Crowds and Riots is a series of photographic works that depict significant gatherings of people, each relating to particular moments from Vancouver's history. The photographs were created in the same way as a motion picture, using either purpose-built sets or real locations, and casting, dressing and preparing actors for each historical period. Douglas used digital photography for its immediacy and its chromatic and geometric stability. While some images depict clashes between police and crowds, all of them illustrate the formation of individuals into groups by various forces. Uh, we're in a room with um, a series of photographs, um, part of four phot photographs called uh, Crowds and Riots, in which I began photographing people for the first time. I had done some portraits of characters from a piece called Klatsassin, a western I made, based on Kurosawa's Rashomon, but I always avoided photographing people. I had photographed many landscapes, because I liked the idea of the, seeing traces of history in a place, or to imagine the uh, possibility of an action taking place in a place. Whereas I always felt if you have a, a person in the photograph, they become the focus of attention. It's kind of their um, inhabiting the space which becomes most important and various kinds of uh, psychodramas take place. So I always kind of avoided that as a way because it would limit the possibilities. I felt that if I had groups of people, there could somehow be uh, another kind of potential to spin off in different directions based on that. So I thought by doing a crowd and imagining what brought them together, where they go when they leave, um, what happens when they are together, these uh, micro-narratives could be a more interesting way of, of taking pictures. So the method you approach your work in, they are all photographs at a glance, but there's an awful lot more going on in how they're constructed. The 1970s, the 50s, yeah. early 20th century. Yeah. 30s. 30s, that yeah. one, yes. So how do they begin and how do they come to be what we see? There are four photographs about the way in which people are constructed as a group or construed as a group. Um, in the one from the 1920s, it's an image uh, of a, in a muddy um, sports field called the Powell Street Grounds in Vancouver where parades or, or events, sporting events would take place. Um, we see a, a, a sort of muddy boardwalk with um, a mother and two, two daughters walking, walking by, avoiding the melee that's happening behind them. Uh, an audience that was probably there before to see political speeches now become the audience for the arrest of the, the organizers. Uh, these wobblies, these um, uh, communists coming from uh, California up to Vancouver to organize unemployed men. Um, at the moment of what were, this was called the, the free speech demonstration because free speech was banned in Vancouver in, in these years. An assembly of more than three people 
by anyone but the Salvation Army was also also banned. So in protest, they organized this uh, demonstration with uh, about 2,000 people uh, on the Palace Creek grounds, and they were swiftly broken up by a battalion of police officers armed with uh, uh, cudgels and, and bullwhips, and they were, t- they were taken away. Anyway, so what we have here is a case of people from an outside trying to organize people into, into a body of some kind. These uh, uh, agitators wanted to make the uh, unemployed men into a body who could sort of um, organize them and represent themselves. I was fascinated by they're mainly men. Yeah. Um, there's one woman in a coat yeah. with a fancy enough hat. And then there's another woman and she's protecting two young girls who yeah. are looking very well dressed and yes. they look like there's not a stain on their clothes. One is in fact carrying a fancy doll, so yeah. they're from another class, clearly. Yes. What was this based on having this woman whose face we don't see? We see one of the little girls looking the other girl doesn't seem to be, but one girl is catching mm-hmm. what's going on. There's something there to be noticed. What are you trying to tell us there? Uh, well, there is one scene on the, on the young girl's uh, stockings, because um, you know ki- kids do get dirty now and then. Um, but there is a sense in which classes did mix on the streets in Vancouver. It was not a very big city, so to get from one place to another, you had to uh, encounter the, these, these other groups. Typically, that invisible force field between classes prevented them from, from mixing to a certain degree, but uh, this would be a case in which the uh, force field could be broken, and I think that's what the woman is protecting her daughters from. Uh, there's, there's mud and gravel around it, and there's this, this boardwalk as the uh, safest place to get from a, point A to point B, so she's trying to hurry them away, uh, you know, away from whatever is going on. I may be mistaken, but I don't think I see anybody's eyes of the crowd, down to even the man at the rear of the crowd who's looking away towards us, but his cap is covering his eyes. Is that deliberate? I mean, I imagine, Stan, everything is deliberate. <laughs> Uh, that is very true. I, I guess it was a question of the attention being somehow out, outside of, the, of the, what we can see. There's, there's more than what we can see. I've always liked those Casper um, David Friedrich paintings where we see a witness of something, some, often something sublime, and, and through that we don't see what they're looking at, but we see that they're seeing something that's quite extraordinary. That in, in the case of Friedrich, something that's unrepresentable, something uh, sublime. You know, we see that man looking off, um, off out of frame to, to something we can't see. Uh, these audiences, the audience which is otherwise there, is being pushed away from the thing they're, they're trying to see, which is the, uh, uh, the agitators being pushed around. But yeah, we don't exactly know what the nature of their gazes is like, and that's basic ambiguity of this, this picture. Uh, this is from a, a moment in 1935, a thing called the Battle of Valentine Pier. Um, some longshoremen had organized themselves into a, a union, and um, they were protesting the way in which uh, jobs were being assigned and went on strike. The company running the, the docks brought in uh, scab laborers. The uh, longshoremen were confronting them, and three kinds of police were, were there to um, uh, shoot them away, violently causing a riot in the neighborhood for about four hours. Um, this would be on the outskirts of the, the pier itself, which is to the left of, of this image. Uh, but I've always loved this building, which is called the BC Sugar Refinery, uh, which um, stands right beside it, which is an incredible wall of uh, turn-of-the-century industrial architecture. But here we see um, a, a very linear narrative of um, one person uh, escaping, presumably, a uh, confrontation between uh, a police officer on a horse and, and three men who are running away. Um, we're not quite sure what's going on. There's the man turning to confront him. The horse is obviously rearing, not wanting to, to um, uh, fall on anybody. Uh, on the far left, we watch um, an officer 
uh, higher in rank, watching one man squirming and being taken away, while finally on the far left there's a man taking notes of the whole situation. Um, in the middle, the, the mounted policeman is obviously the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and then on the left we see the um, provincial police, far left, the brown uniform, and the dark blue of the, uh, the city police. So we identify these, these different groups all trying to, to break up what was otherwise a coherent group. So as opposed to a group being formed by an outside agent, here we have a group that's made themselves into a unit that's being broken up by uh, these powers that be. Uh, and truth be told, there's a certain amount of technical things I had to learn to make the, the photograph in the next room, the Gastown Riot photograph that I learned by doing these pictures. How do I direct a crowd? How do I deal with putting things together? This image uh, of the, the pier was done in three pieces. The uh, large brick wall, which is parallel to the picture plane, uh, was shot on location, but, and there's still train tracks there as they were back in the day but it would cost me $5,000 to control a train uh, for, the, uh, for the afternoon, so I decided not to do it that way. So instead I shot the, the building facade in one place, the train tracks in another place, the road in a, in a third place, and the actors in a, in a fourth place, then all uh, assembled in, uh, in Photoshop. The key thing was that the optical center of the LV images was always uh, exactly the same, based on gravity and information I was given by a surveyor who was able to place my lens at exactly the right spot. Then there's a question of the horse, how do I photograph a horse? And you know, this is, this is a very old artistic problem. How do you photograph a horse so it looks like they're not flying, not falling, not standing still, giving a certain character to it, to it as well as uh, that's uh, an issue in terms of timing, but also in terms of exposure, uh, f-stop and, uh, and shutter speed. A willingness to direct animals, which is always done with hesitancy. <laughs> yeah. You kind of let them do what they want to do. You choose them so that the behavior that they will tend to make is the one you, you need at that moment. This is a very different collection of people. Yep. Very often when we see a photograph like this, the photographer might be looking at one one person or maybe yep. a pair or an activity within a group or whatever, but they seem to have all equal billing. Is, is that true or is that something you wanted? Or? I, I would say so. I would say that there's, um, I want it to be equally distributed you know, across like a crowd of people in which um, various things are, are happening, both uh, within the frame and outside the frame. It, it's called um, Hastings Park, July 1955, but this idea of the 50s uh, is taking place here. I kind of knew I was going towards that Helen Lars project when I made this. This is made in 2008, and I began doing research for Helen Lars around the same time. But these, this group is being made into group without their knowledge. They are consumers, basically. Uh, in this case, to uh, consume a game of chance, a horse race at a track uh, on the outskirts of Vancouver. So we're seeing a group of people sitting on uh, sort of rough red bleachers or, or seating um, that was constructed to, to resemble what they, they were on the day and from a very high angle looking at a, uh, this array of people distributed uh, evenly uh, across a picture plane. So I shot this in, in various little groups, but the, the key thing was that I didn't exactly direct them. I let them behave the, they, the way they behave. First I told them that they were actually watching two tennis balls being held by um, uh, directing assistants, uh, and they were cheering one or the other tennis ball, and of course they weren't actors, so their performance was not, uh, not that great. But what I was really doing was, is photographing their behavior uh, in between takes. And so we see in, the, in the, the scene various things taking place. A woman who, uh, in the lower right-hand corner, who's explaining something to a man who's not quite understanding what she's saying. She was talking a lot during the entire shooting session, and he was uh, patiently listening to what she said. 
Um, slightly above them to the right, there's a man looking at a, a program. We made the, the various programs, betting carts, the green sheet. Uh, we're manufactured for this piece, so we have the, the athletic props. Uh, the men around him to, to the right did not get the prop, and they're kind of curious about it, so looking over his shoulder. But it could be this, the same condition of people looking over his shoulder and seeing what bets he's making. People are smoking, of course, so we don't, don't see so much anymore. Going further to the left, we see a man in a blue jacket who's making a, a wide gesture, uh, telling dirty jokes, as he was during the, the entire shooting, beside a woman who's a little bit horrified by that, and then a woman beside her who's not so offended by what's being said, and the guy down below who's quite, quite fascinated. Uh, down at the bottom, uh, a man talking to a woman in, in red, trying to pick her up, uh, as he possibly was during the entire uh, time we were shooting there. And then often throughout, there are people who are having conversations, sometimes lively, sometimes not, sharing jokes or lost in their own thoughts, waiting for the next thing to happen, just as you might be waiting for uh, the next horse race to, to start. Now, this is one photograph where you literally see the number of people with which you work. There are many, many people there who had to be dressed, makeup, yeah. directions, crowd control. Was that something you enjoy doing? Have I read somewhere that you like to work with people who aren't actors, um, that you find the difference between actors and, dare we say it, real people, ordinary people, non-acting people? Does that give you more of a freedom? They're coming with the opportunity to, be, to work with you or what? I mean, actors tend to look like actors. Actors have to be in good, a decent shape to, to, to do their job, uh, whereas an extra is somebody who's willing to act but may not be an actor all the time and may have uh, bad habits as when they're not act acting. So we can see evidence of their life in their, in their body types and their faces and that kind of thing. Maybe they have uh, steak and martinis for lunch every, every day uh, that an actor would certainly not do, but you can see that in the way they, way they behave. You have a choice. Either you, you have actors and you get them to grow their hair and gain some weight and uh, rehearse and, and do the thing uh, exactly the way you want, where you find people who behave the way you need them to behave and let, let them do that and wait for the right moment to, to capture them. So this was shot in many little pieces that were then assembled into uh, uh, this final image. Um, it was shot in two pieces, primarily left and right, and then assembled on top of each other. And I guess from doing that I learned the problematics of actually compositing different takes in that way because I was interested in certain groups of activities taking place and then if an actor or a performer is moving in the foreground, the person in the background somehow has to be reconstructed because they're moving with their head will block certain parts of their body. So having had this uh, prob problematic, I realized that I should make the other photograph, the right photograph, in, in layers. So we shoot the back layer, the mid-ground, and the foreground uh, separately so they can then be easily um, composited together. I've noticed walking through the exhibition, there's great clarity in each piece. And I was talking before about tends to be focus in every corner of every photograph. So there are things like that that you work on through the layering. There must be an awful lot of learning the process for the next work. Yeah, and, and some works are about that sort of complete control, but other ones are, are, are not. In Manchester State, there are two images which are highly constructed in, in that way, uh, the two wide panoramas, but the rest are typically shown in, in one exposure. Um, and I was very interested in using the aleatoric nature of photography uh, to my advantage. Instead of having this kind of mastery we see in, in these things, where it's all about controlling um, the reality that's, that's being photographed and constructing that, I wanted to allow the randomness of the photographic act to come into it. Because uh, I kind of, uh, before I made these photographs, the, the Crowds and Rights photographs, I had to make a decision, do I shoot them digitally or do I do them um, an analog? 
Um, so I did some very intense research in the nature of photography, uh, technically learning how to read things like the modulation transfer function of, of lenses, their distortion, chromatic aberration, all these, these arcane things. In the end, I decided it's not so important what medium you use, as long as you have good lenses. But the, I guess the crucial thing was I could shoot more quickly in digital. I could have it look just as good as if it were, were analog, uh, given if you can uh, afford the, the tools to make that happen. Anyway, I, I kind of learned that the, the thing which made photography uh, not art to many people for, for so many years in the 20th century, um, that it was automatic, that it was not completely under control, um, that there was this sort of exterior device, was one of its sort of fundamental characteristics and one of its strengths. Um, the photographs that are completely controlled can be interesting in a certain way, but there's a, a thing in photography where it will do things without your uh, investment, which then uh, intrude on your intentions, which may be better than your intentions. So in a way, the real intervenes in your, your activity when you're taking a, a, a photograph. You collaborate with the real, where sort of uh, if you, the, the apparatus is this thing which is not part of human consciousness, it's out of, out of your mind, you can sort of uh, make, it, make it do things to a certain degree, but there are other predictable things it does you don't, you can never control. And that's one of its wonderful, uh, magical things about the, the medium, which I tried to exploit with Mid-Century Studio. Let's walk over to have a look at a few yeah. of those photos. Sure. Included in the exhibition is the photographic series Mid-Century Studio, made by a fictitious photographer. This invented photographer is a self-taught Vancouver photojournalist who stumbled into photography after serving in World War II. So why did Douglas create such a person? As I was saying before, this is based on research I've done for Helen Lawrence. And the one of the major sources of research was the inquest and the corruption of the police force from, the 19, from 1955. Uh, that's kind of why Hastings Part is dated 1955. Um, but it's based on events from 1948, which is when Helen Lawrence takes place, when the police chief kind of, or he, the police chief felt that things were the way they were during the 19, uh, 1940s, during the war, and so the usual practice of collect, making collections from people uh, for various kinds of advice would be okay. And so we got an honest cop, he asked an honest cop to do that, and the, the guy was like, this is ridiculous, I'm an honest cop, this is not what I do. Went to the mayor, uh, the, the various squads were shut down, and it was kind of hushed up because people thought there might be a, because uh, the mayor was afraid of this, this story getting out to the public. So the various squads were, were, were broken up. Anyway, this guy named Raymond Monroe uh, heard, about, heard about this story, uh, probably in retribution from the police chief again, putting pressure on somebody who was his former, um, a former partner of his. And Monroe was this kind of crazy journalist who um, was very, he would often threaten people. He learned hypnotism to sort of get uh, uh, information out of, out of people. Anyway, M Monroe began his career as a photographer. He, um, heard, he came out of the war, he was, uh, flew in the Battle of Britain, he had no experience taking photographs, but he heard there was a job for an aero photographer in Vancouver. He, he knew he couldn't take photographs, but he could fly a plane with one hand, and so he came out. He was uh, in Toronto, uh, borrowed his father's car, drove to the airport, crashed it, broke his collarbone, got a bottle of whiskey to ease the pain, uh, arrived in Vancouver drunk, and was able to bluff his way into getting the job, and then learned, learned his uh, craft um, as he was doing it. Later on, during the inquest, he was a sort of a, a very lively character, which sort of added to the uh, wealth of crazy details to what was happening uh, in this transitional moment um, in the post-war period. Um, but I wanted to see if there were more people like Monroe, people who would um, come out of the army, be unemployed, uh, buy a camera and say, I'm a photographer, and try to get work. 
and I went through 6,000 images at a place called the uh, Black Star Archive in Toronto, which is an archive of a photo agency from New York City. And uh, I saw this pattern where, in, from around 1945, there's not a huge demand for a requirement of pictorial quality, um, but by 1950, there's a certain kind of journalistic implication or inflection that has to be uh, in the photographs that they publish, and, and pictorial sophistication is important to them as well. Um, so this transition was, was very, very prevalent um, throughout all the images I, I saw. So what we see in my photographs is a fictional character, a photographer who's learning his craft uh, as he's documenting the normalization of, of, his, of his culture, going from uh, things being a little bit odd, a little bit off, to things which he, in photographs where he in a way documents uh, in an editorial way, uh, a journalistic way, uh, what, what he's seeing around with almost a, a moral judgment or the people that he's looking at and seeing. Early on, the images are, are quite, uh, quite random, out of his control, and therefore quite documentary. The apparatus, photographic apparatus, is to a large degree telling the story. Towards the end, he's very much in control and constructing images. So the image we see in Dice, of these three men in good suits playing Dice beside, the, uh, beside a bathroom, is in a way a commentary on his condition of the, these men who are otherwise grown-up men who would be playing this uh, street craps um, in, inside uh, in a spare moment as opposed to doing something more useful in society. So he's passing judgment on them with the photograph, but he could not take the photograph unless he had their permission. Uh, he's very, very close to them. There's a big flash that's going off, and it's a very cumbersome upper apparatus. There's no way he could be a, a fly in the wall finding this image. So he basically had to get their agreement and construct the, the image to make that take place. Um, so we see these three guys, the dice flying in the air, uh, about to uh, hit the ground and make somebody money or, or not. Um, but it's a, a moment that has been highly constructed by the photographer. In contrast to an early one called Camouflage, where we see uh, a person from 1945 uh, in camouflage in a tree, and the photographer thought that if they would light it from left and right, it would make them more visible, but actually it makes them more invisible, where his camouflage works even better than it would if there were no lighting uh, at all. So we see the whole gamut of, of work that he was doing. Um, this documentary work for the army, as well as product photography, images of people he knew, uh, portraiture, um, up to these uh, journalistic images at the end of his career, which sort of culminate in uh, Malabar people. We photographed both the patrons and the um, staff at a, at a downtown Eastside bar in the very most simple way you possibly could, with two lights, bang, bang, with a film noir look of the various um, cultural type scenario, almost performing a photographic uh, sociology. These photographs were available in archives. They could have been shown as an exhibition, as a document of that period. But you decided to construct them anew, to make your own of them. If we were to show your work and their work perhaps side by side, what would you like to see distinguishable in yours, different to the right. archived photos? Well, often I'm, I'm com uh, combining things, making a synthesis of different things I see in, in those photographs. Uh, often the photographs are, um, I guess the thing about the, the photography in this era is that the apparatus is very, very cumbersome. You have a big, um, large format camera, usually a speed graphic, uh, would take time to replace the, the flash bulb, take time to replace the magazine, difficult to frame, uh, clumsy to shoot, uh, because to make it stable is, is quite, a, quite a, a proposition. So often people would stick with what they had. Um, I had the opportunity to shoot many images uh, digitally, uh, quickly with an electronic flash, so I could get closer to, to what I wanted than what they did, even though uh, I was working with a situation and not, say, building a composition. 
typically I would just um, make a situation and then try to find the best way to photograph that. Um, so I taught these guys street craps. They took turns playing the game, and I found the best way to uh, get that shot in that situation. But what would distinguish what I was doing these images from what the originals are um, is a certain kind of concentration. Um, like there's image A and image B, which I find in the archive, which I find fascinating for this or that reason. I can uh, synthesize into, into one image in, in my pictures. We've moved along to the long hall here, where the, is it the only cricket photograph? I was interested in seeing the shadows on the grass. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a contour where we're looking um, the opposite direction of the sunlight. But what we're seeing here are a bunch of cricketers in a cricket pitch in a, in a West Coast rainforest. There's a sort of legend or story, which is more, likely, more than likely true, that um, cricket players cleared an area called Stanley Park in Vancouver to make a place where they could play, play cricket. So they uh, cut down the first growth trees, cleared the land, uh, planted the grass, uh, rolled it out so they could play cricket there. And to this day, apparently, the uh, local cricket society is able to demand use of any kind of any outdoor space in the park because they were, in effect, the owners of it at one, at one point. Anyway, this, I found a peculiar thing where people were playing this sport in a kind of environment we don't associate with that, the sport. Um, you know, it's not the UK, it's not um, uh, South Asia, uh, but the sort of West Coast um, rainforest. Here we see a, a game being played. In the middle, the, the ball has uh, not quite been caught. The p uh, people are running uh, back and forth. I had a few ringers who were actual cricketers who were playing the game, uh, but the, many of the others were just uh, extras who were, didn't have to do anything, just standing around. Uh, but just this kind of odd combination of both uh, situation and cultural activity, I found an interesting uh, combination. We see a lot of Caribbean uh, people who are playing the game, again, indicating a, uh, a moment in the post-war period as uh, the people from different parts of the empire are moving around. I guess it was such that the situation I was after didn't really exist anymore, so I had to actually shoot the background and the foreground in different places. So the background where we see the trees is from the park itself, but the foreground is from a um, cricket pe uh, pitch 10 kilometers away. Do you play cricket, by the way? My, my father did a, a long time ago, but I, but I had to be coached. I had a consultant uh, to, to actually, he did all the work in getting the, the grass to look correct and um, had the vintage gear as well as um, to tell me about the distribution of all the players and that kind of thing. Was there a similar photograph that you were working from, from some newspaper archive? Was there some echo of some other match? In a way, there's an image of people playing cricket in this park, but um, didn't look at all like this. We're looking at through it, you see through the trees to the water, you see the harbour and that kind of thing. Um, but I like this idea of a more dense uh, locale that really appears to be in the middle of nowhere. You have moved with technology over the last 30 years. You now even have an app. Is technology something that you've grown to love or that has taken over your life through your work? What's your relationship with technology, essentially? Well, technology is a medium. I mean, painting is a te technology. Uh, a theatre stage is a, is a technology. Uh, light lighting is a technology. These are all things you have to deal with if you're making um, uh, mechanical images, which is something I do. Uh, the frustrating thing is that the technology changes and things become obsolete. I'm kind of worried about my 16mm films, which I, I just showed a film in, in Edinburgh called There's Man, 
and uh, was asking my technician, why is this looking so pale? Well, I mean, I thought, was it just a bit smaller than usual? Is the, the projector brighter than usual? And then I made some phone calls and found out that Kodak was putting less silver uh, in their black and white film stock now, so it doesn't look the way it, it used to. And there's, of course, the possibility of stop, stopping that film altogether. Because I, I believe there's a certain uh, phenomenology to these media, even though people might be think that watching a film on YouTube is good enough, there's still an experience of watching a film as it flickers on a screen with a certain kind of spatial noise uh, and a certain kind of resolution that it, at a certain scale, that is an experience of an image that we, don't, we can't get from sitting in front of a computer. So if we can maintain the phenomenology of the experience of the technology, then I'm fine with uh, any kind of transformation that happens in, uh, in various upgrades. But if it uh, attenuates, it, attenuates it, that's a problem. So it's something essentially that concerns you because of the nature of your work. Yeah, for example, we screened a, a film by Samuel Becker called Film, but it was not shown on film, it was shown on, on video. And someone had applied um, some noise reduction to the audio track. And previously, the audio track is, is a silent film except for one, one event. But before, you were always hearing dust on the audio track. So as you watched it, you were always aware that something might happen, that there might be a sound, which never, never ever came. But you're always reminded as a possibility of sound, even though there was no sound. But to hear that instead in absolute silence uh, is a different experience altogether. Worrying, rather. You'd wonder what Samuel Beckett, who was so <laughs> careful and cautious about his stage directions, was, yeah. what he would think of that now. Finally, the app, circa 1948. Is that available for people to experience, or is that an app that's connected with exhibitions? Oh, it's a, a separate thing, which uh, you can download from the uh, iTunes store. Circa 1948, produced by uh, myself with the National Film Board of Canada, uh, Media Lab in, in Vancouver. And um, it's basically a non-linear narrative you can uh, determine by yourself. Um, I'm usually kind of skeptical of um, non-linear narratives, the idea that we're taking out of a, a story to make a decision about how the story will go. But in this case, you, a, a, a user moves through a space and will encounter these, these, these narratives, um, which they can decide to stay with or, or, or leave if, if, as, as need be. So they can see as little as, or as much as they need to make sense of where they are. So it's a much more intuitive way of experiencing uh, these narrative choices than it would be if it says, well, do we go here or go there and that kind of thing. So it tells the story of the characters in the play, Helen Lawrence, during a period of time when we're not seeing them in, in the play. The play is in the morning, in the evening, and late at night. These stories mostly take place at, uh, in the afternoon at twilight. And there's about two and a half hours of um, uh, narrative content. But again, you just need to see as, as little or as much as, as, as you like. In both in the alley, we build an entire city block on the east side, and two floors of the old hotel. Yeah, well, multiple narratives is something that has fed through your works all along. So mm. maybe the app is in your thinking, in the way that an app works. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Stan Douglas. Okay, thank you. Visual artist Stan Douglas there talking about his work and art practice in the Irish Museum of Modern Art, where Stan Douglas' mise en scène runs until the 20th of September this year. As well as the photographic work, the exhibition includes Douglas's film Luanda Kinshasa from 2013. It's a speculative fiction of a recording studio session made in New York in the 1970s and based on a meticulous reconstruction by Douglas of the venue in which Miles Davis recorded all of his studio albums from 1954 to 1981. The musicians improvise 11 distinct melodies which play for approximately six hours, some of which you've heard during this programme. 
On next week's Arts Tonight, I look at the final volume of Art and Architecture of Ireland, 20th Century, with its editors Catherine Marshall and Peter Murray, as well as Murnley Connell, Brenda Moore-McCann and others. Join me then. Good night. <laughs>